Hello, and welcome to episode 77 of Just Keep Writing. A podcast for writers. Bye, writers. To keep you writing. I'm Marshall. I'm Nick. I'm Brent. And that's Will. <laughs> <laughs> Will's somewhere in the ether. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, so gentlemen, this, this week, I'm going to turn it over to you guys here in just a minute. I just want to say how much I appreciate your guys's, um, conversations around the military. We're going to do one more episode about that this week. Um, and maybe circle back to it later, um, uh, next year as well. So, uh, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to you guys. You guys are awesome. I can't wait to see what you guys, uh, chat about. So thanks for being here and being awesome. Okay, everyone. So what we're going to do is, uh, pick up from the conversation we had previously where we kind of discussed uh, Nick and his experiences being a veteran in the uh, army and also add in my own experiences being a military brat and what that looks like. And I should probably should actually explain what that term even means because some people may not know. So um, I guess I'll start there. Uh, so the term military brat is referencing someone who is a child of um, a service member and they pretty much spent the majority of their childhood with a father or mother or both or whatever combination of legal guardian in the service. And the reason the word brat is used is because what is often believed is that, you know, military parents have a lot of guilt about the amount of time that they spend away from their children. So, when they are around their children, they spoil them. And so uh, that's where the term comes from, basically, military brat, is that, you know, a lot of military kids get spoiled by their parents because of the guilt that a lot of them have about being overseas or just the amount of time that they spend away from the kids in general. So, yeah, so I think that's a good little segue into the full conversation. Yeah, no, 100%. I mean, it, it was fun to talk last week. We, we did talk about my experiences some of the issues and struggles I deal with uh, when facing PTSD, anxiety and depression and things like that. Um, and how being in the service kind of, you know, doesn't help that, but helps that at the same time there. Um, but I think it's interesting, like, you know, to kind of talk the mil- uh, about the military as a whole and kind of compare our experiences. There's going to be some similarities and differences for sure coming out of this. Um, but I think it's a good perspective, not, not only to have, you know, a, a veteran's viewpoint, but like to have a kid's viewpoint, um, you know, what you experienced over, I don't know what, 20 years, uh, you know, there. So yeah, yeah. at least yeah. Uh, for sure. 18, because it was, I mean, my dad was in the military from the time I was born until the time I graduated high school. So the, your whole you, life. Yeah. Pretty <laughs> much. Yeah. Your, your child growing up there. Yeah. It's just kind of crazy, but, uh, so we're, Gonna ask each other some questions here. Um, yeah. maybe nothing nothing too too difficult or scary, but we'll we'll see what kind of questions come up just from our conversation here. But yeah. uh Brennan, I kinda wanna open up to you first. Can you kinda walk us through a little bit about, you know, timeline, what your dad did in the military, uh like and places you lived? Um, kinda so we can get a an encompassing look at those eighteen years. Yeah, so um, my dad was in the army. Um, he, it, well, I was born in Louisiana, so that's where he's from. So um, his first station outside of Louisiana was actually, well, actually, it's funny. So before I was born, he was in the military for a little bit, and then he got out, 
And then when I was born, he got back in again. So he had a few years where he was in the military before I was born. And I think he was stationed in Hawaii, Korea, a couple of different places. Then once he got back in, the first station we went to was Fort Hood, which is in Texas, which actually wasn't too far from Louisiana. So I was a kid. I don't remember a whole lot about that. Um, Then we moved to Alaska. And um, I remember bits and pieces of Alaska, like not enough to like have a full picture of it. But and it's weird because I was very young. But to I guess it being such a jarring difference, maybe did something to my mind because I have little memories in, of it. And then um, after Alaska, we moved to Georgia. No, wait, we moved to. Yes, we moved to Georgia for the first time. Yeah, we moved to Georgia. And that's when my little brother was born. My sister was born in Alaska. So my little sister was born in Alaska. My little brother was born in Georgia. And um, after Georgia, we moved to Hawaii. And we were in Hawaii for a few years. And then after Hawaii, we moved to Tennessee. And then after Tennessee, we moved to Panama in Central America. And we were there for a few years. And then from Panama, we came back to Georgia. And Georgia's where he basically did the rest of his um, time in the military until he retired. Okay. Well, that pretty extensive though. You moved around quite a bit. So yeah. Yeah. We moved around a bunch. (laughs) (laughs) And that's kind of like the thing though, right? We, we talk about all the time, you know, as a, as a service member, the life cycle of the army, you get stationed somewhere, you're only there for two or three years and then you're gone because the needs of the army changes all the time. Um, and I know in my my later career, they were like, no, like we need to stabilize families and we need to give them at least five years at a duty station. Um, right. And, you know, duty station, that is, you know, what base you're, you're at and stuff like that. That's where your your assignment goes to there uh, just for terminology. Um, but I mean, walk, walk me through. Recap of the last question I asked you at the end of that episode, right? What's your what was your favorite thing about growing up in the military, and your least favorite thing? So, um, my favorite thing is it's weird because a lot of the things that I loved are some things that I hated, but um, I I loved very much getting to see the world at such a young age, and and to be quite honest, it was barely even scratching the surface of the world, but. For a kid, you know, moving to all these different places and seeing these different things and, you know, getting to experience the ways that people like, you know, live was actually like super illuminating. And I think it is a it plays a huge part in like how I am today and like, you know, the way that I the way that I try to view things globally, I try, you know, I, everyone has their shorts fallings, but yeah, I think that definitely helped me have more of a, like the global worldview as opposed to like, you can see it in people who grew up in the same town their whole life and they've never left it. Like that, that bubble isn't, doesn't ever really go any further than like maybe a couple of hundred miles outside of where they live, you know? So um, that to me was a huge advantage and something I did love about being in the military because I, I did get to be exposed to so much like who gets to go to the rainforest as a field trip in middle school like that's not something most kids get to talk about serious um, yeah so you know that that, that that's and that was cool but I also hated it too because like there was never any sense of anything 
being permanent in terms of like my relationships. Besides for my brother and sister and, you know, immediate family, um, pretty much nothing was ever permanent. We would move every two years, every two or three years. And, you know, it, it it's almost it was almost cruel because it was like by the time you would get used to it, you were already on the way out. And, you know, so the and, and this is growing up in like the 90s. So we didn't necessarily have the um, social media that you have today to keep in touch with people and to try to like hold on to those connections. So, you know, literally sometimes, especially like in the elementary school years, it was pretty much like literally starting over again and trying to, you know, make friends and and fit in, and, you know, just all those things that kids try to do. And yeah, but and again, like I said, love and hate. I also loved it too because it was like also a chance to reinvent myself every time. Like, you know, you got to go somewhere, you you got a blank slate. You could you could be, you know, you could be different. You didn't have to the embarrassing thing you did at school last year, no one knows about here because no one even knows you. So you, you know, <laughs> like you you get the chance to sort get of rebuild out, yourself. You, you get out of jail free card for embarrassment. Yeah, like literally, or like if you, you know, are like, and it's so funny because the way you would be perceived in each place would be slightly different. Like, you know, you would go to, like, I would be in Tennessee. I was like a huge freaking nerd. Like it was like, oh god, like yeah, terrible, terrible nerd. But I get to Panama, and still a nerd. Like definitely, I, I think that's just my core DNA. But I like also started playing more sports. And so it's like, oh, well, he's like a kind of like a athletic nerd or whatever. But so it's like everywhere you got to go, you got the chance to sort of reinvent yourself and kind of be um, become something different. And I'm so honestly, though, the biggest thing I think I appreciate about having moved from place to place is that I'm definitely a writer today because of those experiences, because outside of my family, stories were the one thing that was always permanent and forever present. So that's why I I think I gravitated towards storytelling, because it it, it was something I could it was something I could control and something that Mm -hmm. like, you know, it never left. Yeah, well, I mean, you're experiencing so many different things like how. Right. We have a problem now as adults turning off our creative muscle. And as a kid, your imagination is the only thing you have sometimes. So I can only imagine like the creativity that you were able to experience, you know, moving to different places, seeing what you see. I mean, you're home from Georgia, Louisiana, you throw in Alaska in there and Panama. Like, yeah, that's an adventure on its own through through a book series. Right. Yeah, you know, no, people always tell me that. <laughs> they always tell me like, "Oh, your life sounds like you could write it down." I'm like, for me, I'm like, "Oh, it's just my life." Like, I didn't, I don't think of it in terms of it being like an adventure or exciting or anything like that. It's like, oh, it's just that was just my normal. Yeah, yeah, I, I feel that. Um, well, my next question for you though, like, you brought up the term "military brat." Yeah, how do you feel about that term? Like, I mean, it's a little derogatory, but at the same time, it it, it is a little accurate, too. There is some accuracy in it, for sure. Um, Yeah, no, there's definitely some accuracy in it. And I think because there is some guilt that parents feel about, Mm -hmm. you know, like sometimes my dad and honestly, we actually have moved more places. If my dad had brought us to every place he was assigned, there were times he would get assigned someplace else and he wouldn't bring us. 
And so he'd be gone for like a year, a year and a half. And, you know, so it's like your parents. And it, and this happened multiple times throughout my childhood Dang. where he'd be gone for like a year or a year and a half. And and then all of a sudden you come back and it's like, I, I think he t- he always tells this one story about like how like he had to leave before my brother was born to go to Iraq and oh, um, okay. the first go for it. Yeah. So he left before my brother was born. And by the time he came back, my brother didn't know who he was. So he went to go give my brother a hug and my brother ran away screaming because he was like, he didn't know him. And Man. my dad was like, that broke his heart. Like he was like, yeah, that like just made him like, you know, sad. Like, like young kid didn't know who you were. Yeah. And so, yeah. So when you have situations like that, like I can only imagine being a parent of course you want to spoil your kids. You're like, I've been gone. Like, they don't even know me. Like, yeah, I got to, you know, do what I got to do. And yeah, there's definitely some truth to it. But I think, I think that, um, I don't necessarily hate the term. I don't hate it. I think it's just, you know, it's one of those things I don't even think about in terms of like being derogatory or not. It's just not yeah. like a thing we say. But um, yeah, there's definitely truth to it. Like, I, and I think, if anything, parents also worry, and I think that's where the the spoiled part comes from too. Because I think yeah. parents worry that like, how is this affecting my kid? Like, how is my life and the way I live it and the things I'm asking them to do? How does it affect them? And I think a lot of military parents worry about that. Yeah, I I mean, especially I think a lot has changed since like the Vietnam era. Because my my mom's a military brat, my grandfather's a a Vietnam veteran and uh, her upbringing is a lot different than the upbringings that I saw. And, you know, things that you experienced, they're, they're vastly different. I think a lot has changed, not only like in how parents view it, but how the army is trying to help parents. It'd be more, a little bit more stabilized there in, in the family centric aspect of things. Um, <clears throat> another question I got for you too. Tell me about high school. High school, oh. like I think last time you mentioned, you went through what, two different high schools. Yeah, I uh, so high school is one of those awful experiences. Um, <laughs> well, not entirely awful, but so I when um when we got to Georgia and I was going to high school, I was thinking that you know finally at long last. High school is the one place I can go to all yeah. four years and have like something that is like stable for once. Like that's what I, my hope was. And the thing was, so what happened, uh, ninth and 10th grade, my, my father was, um, we were still living on the military base. But after 10th grade, he was making a transition to almost being retired. So as part of that transition, he, um, wanted to move off base and you know housing being what housing is the um house that they bought was in a different county so i ended up having to go to a different high school for 11th and 12th grade he was still in the military but you know he was just going through that whole yeah down process that long process of getting to retirement and um yeah i hated it god i hated the second high school so much it was such a it was i I had like, you know, most people talk about their high school reunions or, you know, whatever. Like, I have no intention of ever going to high school reunion. It has no sentimental value to me whatsoever. Like, I didn't really make, I made some friends, but nothing I would ever consider like a close connection. 
And it was just like, I hated it. I wanted no parts of it. I, I, I was miserable every day of like 11th and 12th grade. I like missed the friends that I made in ninth and 10th grade. Cause it was like ninth and 10th grade was so good. I had so many friends and it felt like, you know, it felt like a bit of belonging. And then that just all got snatched away and I yeah. hated it. Yeah. But, and it was, and honestly I had like, I definitely had some resentment towards my dad at that at that point in particular because I was like, you couldn't just let me have one thing, like one <laughs> one thing to myself, and yeah, and um, yeah. So it was definitely some anger and resentment there, and yeah, we definitely fought a lot. <laughs> we we definitely had like we butted heads quite a bit when I was in high school. I, I understandable though. I mean, that's I mean that's a very large growing point for a lot of people, you know, emotionally and stuff like that, you know, puberty is there and that makes everyone a little crazy. Right. Right. Um, Especially like you're missing out on so much and like, you're starting to realize that at that age. Um, I feel like um, before uh, I got a stack of questions over here on my end here. (laughs) Uh, uh, Before I dive any deeper uh, to the little bit more emotional ones here, I'm going to flip the plate, switch it to you, right? Let okay. you ask a couple questions if you have any. Uh, All right. That way you can get that going. So I got one question since we're, since we're talking about, you know, kids in the military. What would you tell one of your kids if they told you they wanted to join? I, oh, wow. Depending on which kid asks. Oh, okay. That makes a difference. Uh, <laughs> it, it, to me, it makes a difference because I think some personalities are a better fit for the military than others. Um but like, if one of my kids said, "Hey, I'm gonna go to the military," I'm gonna ask him, "What do you want to do?" Um, because that's gonna determine really how I I feel about that. Because um, if I got a kid, like, you know, well, I got a kid that's all jock. He all he wants to do is play sports, 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 sports. I got a little girl that wants to be a cheerleader. No one ever told her she needs to be a cheerleader, but she is straight princess cheerleader all the time. It is just her personality. And pink's the best thing ever. <laughs> and then my oldest is just a science nerd. He wants science. He wants science. I think I think the biggest thing I would explain to him was always like, you're signing up to possibly die. No matter what you do in the military, you could be asked to, to give your life up and make sure they're okay with that. Because I think once once you get to a point where you're okay with that, not, well, my chances are really low. It's like, no, your chances are low of dying in a car crash, but it happens. And every day you take that risk. Right. If you're going to join the military, I feel like that's that's something I, at least I would tell my kids and make sure they were okay with. Like, you're okay with dying and leaving this world and leaving, you know, all of us. If you're okay with that, then, you know, I'm going to support you. For sure. For sure. Um, all right. So yeah, because I my, my little brother's in the military, so that's why I asked the question. Because of all the three of us, he's the one that joined up, and yeah, I, we always knew he would though. So it, it didn't surprise any of us when he finally did decide to join the military. Yeah, yeah, but, that's super interesting to see that though. Yeah, no, we all we all kind of knew. We had the idea. We're like, yeah, he's definitely going to be the <laughs> he's definitely going to be the military guy. No, okay. I, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. I was going to ask, what was your dad's job in the military? And then what's your brother's job in the military? So he was a drill sergeant, my dad. My dad was a drill sergeant. He how actually, long? Um, 
Dang. For like, do you, do you remember what he did during the Gulf War versus like because he was are, infantry? He was definitely infantry. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, he was infantry. Um, I just don't remember exactly. So I do know this. So I know like he was a paratrooper. He did. He jumped out of the planes a lot. Um, which resulted in a whole host of issues later. Uh, he yeah. also was um a ski assault instructor in um Alaska. Yeah. So, okay. Yeah. And um, he also did some long range rifle training shit. I don't know exactly what it's called. So yeah, he was definitely infantry. Um, my brother is logistics. He is a uh, he is yeah he. He's a captain, so he's an officer. Whereas my dad was enlisted, um, yep. and my brother does logistics. So, I feel like your dad may have given some advice. Of oh, he definitely did. Finishing school and take a job that isn't going to kill your body. Yeah, uh, yeah. No, my dad. My my dad. Def- well, see, that's the thing with my dad. He was like, if you want to join, you can join, but I'm going to be there when you're talking to the recruiter because they're not going to bullshit you. And so he made sure he was there and he definitely like, yeah, he definitely guided my brother the right way. Good. I mean, that's awesome to hear because some part of me regrets not going Air Force at one point in my career. Another part of me is like glad I didn't too. The Marines tried to get me. The Marines tried very, very, very hard to get me. And they would have actually, there was two things that kept them from getting me. Otherwise, I probably would be talking to you. Or maybe not actually, but um, it was the don't ask, don't tell, and yep. it was that the Iraq War had just started. Those two things made me go, no. Wait a minute, let's let's pause there, right? And that, and that's the, the funny thing is, I actually joined because of the surge. See, and I, 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 and I guess being a military kid and seeing the results mm-hmm. of some of this stuff, I was like, oh hell no, no, I'm good. And then I was like, I'm not, and I guess I'm, inst- which is kind of crazy. The bigger thing was the don't ask, don't tell, though, more so than the rack. Yeah. It was just like, I was like, I'm not joining something where I have to hide a part of myself. I was like, I am sick of hiding who I am anymore. Yeah. And and so you know that was the bigger motivator. Otherwise, they 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 might have got me. Because the thing is, the the thing there there's a reason that I think that there's a high percentage of military kids that end up joining the military. Is because we understand that lifestyle. We may not know every bit of terminology and every bit of like, you know, logistics and tactics and whatnot, but we understand the routines of it. We understand the pitfalls. We also understand the the good parts. And yeah, and I think, and it's also normal for us. For a lot of us, it's normal. Like I can, there's a, like, it's funny because people ask me this all the time. They're like, were you ex-military? And I'm like, no, never. But I think it's just being the child of one. Like you, there's there's things you pick up. I feel like there's certain disciplinary things um, that you guys get. Yeah. And there's certain, I feel like you're also better mentally prepared for um, adversity too. Yes, that is, um, that is also, so that's one of the benefits and also one of the, like, again, everything I think with being a military kid is like a double-edged sword. So, like, yep. the things that I see rattle people who weren't, like, military kids, I'm like, what? Like, that? That? That's, that, that's really disturbing you that much? And it's like, for me, I'm like, I had to do that when I was in elementary school. Like, how people worry about, you know, moving away 
and the <laughs> amount of anxiety I see that people have about moving somewhere new or moving somewhere. And I'm, and I can't relate to it because I'm like, well, I, I didn't have a choice. I did that all the time. Like I learned, I, I learned very early on that like nothing's permanent. Nothing is, nothing is forever. And I think that's a, that's a lesson that like we learn in a lot of tough ways. Yeah. And in some, in some ways it does make us resilient. It makes us strong. But I think sometimes also we can be a bit detached from people too, because it's like, we don't trust that they're going to stay around. And I think it's hard for us to get into deeper relationships sometimes because we have this understanding very early at a young age that like nothing lasts forever. And I don't know if it's a good or bad thing for kids to learn that lesson that early. Like, (laughs) I don't know. Like I think, I think kids should know, like should feel like some stuff is going to last forever. So yeah, I, if anybody listening, it's probably gonna, you're probably gonna hear me with a lot of conflicted feelings because I do have a lot of just like complicated feelings about like being a military kid. But but I mean that's why we're here, right? Like yeah, it's not cut and dry one way or another. No, no, um, absolutely. It, yeah, it's inter- interesting take. Yeah, so. no, it, it's it, <laughs> it's 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 very like. It's just weird. It's very hard to like negotiate and navigate it sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. So. Okay. So I guess. Um, okay. So next thing I would ask is like, I kind of, we kind of talked about this before I said, what did you miss? But um, what don't you miss about like being in the military? Man. Ooh, I, I don't mean, I don't miss bad leadership. Like we, I mean, there's so much toxic leadership in the military because like people are hung on to the, like the way they were brought up 10 years ago. Yeah. And it's just like, you know, you were brought up a certain way in the military and, and kind of raised in the military in that way. Right. But right. like, there's no excuse for being a shitty leader, like making people just do things to make them suffer because you're bored. Like I don't miss that at all. I don't miss like having to work. 5 30 a.m to five o'clock at night and just stand there all day long because we were ex- expected to be ready to do something and it's like really like i could be bettering myself with school like i could be bettering myself like by going to the gym and actually working out the way my body needs to rather than just running every day and doing sit-ups and push-ups every day like right right you know what i mean i Which yeah it's not I, effective <clears throat> no it only gets you so far. Like, yeah, and they're, yeah. they're finally starting to realize that and they're changing their PT standards, their physical fitness standards. But yeah, I don't miss bad leadership, especially when it came to like captains and officers and, and stuff like that. If they were bad leadership, your whole life was ruined. I watched, right. I watched my last captain kick people out of the military and strip away all their benefits. Even after they had served for four years that six months left and he just chapter them out because they couldn't make weight. They couldn't pass the PT test. And it's like, they're on their way out, dude. They did their term. Like, and you're just doing it just, just because you can. Yeah. Yeah. Just and, because and you can. There's something to be said <clears throat> about like how the military doesn't always attract the best people. No, like, I, I said it on the last one. We're bottom of the barrel. Yeah. Well, and the thing, I think I think you get one or the other. You get really honorable integ- mm-hmm. people with integrity or you get these people who just like to have power 
and like the idea yeah. of feeling superior over someone else. And well, not only that, I served with at four guys underneath me in Louisiana, all of which were given a choice of being in jail for five years or going to join the military. I'll let you know how it went out. All four of them got kicked out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, but however, you put, you put a rifle on their hand, you teach them tactics and you go deploy with them. And they're really good in that scenario, in that violent situation. All other things they suck at. Like, and, and you know, that's, that's one of these awful things that I think I, I always remember this from like, um, man on fire when they were talking about like, everybody has a gift mm-hmm. and they were like, some people's gift is killing. And, and it's like, you know, that that's a horrible gift to have. And God, like, what does that do to a person? But, um, that's some people's gift. Yeah. And yeah. Okay. So I guess this, uh, this is my next question. So, all right, um, all right. All right so with the military's discipline regiment, like kind of structure that it has, do you feel like you've transposed that to your own writing at all? Like has anything about the military's discipline carried into how you write? No. Um, and that's because it's, I'm, I'm me and I flush that out of my system. The first thing I decided to do when I get out is I'm not, I'm sleeping in. I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be strict on time hacks because it, I'm always, I was always naturally a person to show up early. So like that wasn't different for me, but like, yeah, I don't know. It was just one of those things. Like, I'm not going to get up early to go do stuff. I'm going to live the way I want to live now. Um, but there are some, some disciplinary things that I, I feel like have stayed with me. And one of them is, is, is goals and uh, objectives, right? Right. If I set an objective. Hey, I'm going to do this by then. Like I, I have a good time staying on track and make sure I'm planning accordingly to know which days I can take off and which days I can't. Um, so that's kind of helped me in my writing. I think more so it, it's, it's been the experience um, that's helped me with the writing than the, the disciplinary side of things. That's so interesting. Cause like the, di- so even though I wasn't, of course I wasn't in the military, but the discipline that my father had in our household definitely carries into like, the way I carry myself, I guess, throughout publishing in general. Like, I know a lot of people, I was like, God, how are you doing so many different things? Like, how are you doing so much shit? And and I'm very much like, I need to always be looking for an objective, a goal. Like, what am I doing next? What? And and, And I think that is my father's discipline just resonating in like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm starting to find a better balance in it, but definitely when I was like younger, it was very much like, "What's the next thing? What's the objective? Finish this, move on to the next thing." Like it was like always like it was never taking, never taking the time to celebrate. It was always just yes. you finish the thing, move on to the next thing, move on to the next thing, and that. And I'm finally getting to a place where I'm trying to like, I'm I'm making peace with the fact that I'm probably never going to stop having that mentality, but also <laughs> finding a way to to mold it and leave room for like celebration and rest and all those things because yeah because the military doesn't really give you the space for that and i think i definitely i definitely internalized that and took it into my own writing and like how i how i approach writing anyway and yeah so that's why i'm always doing something like it's always something that i'm doing and people like people in not just in writing life but my real life actually like well do you sleep like (laughs) like like how do you have a different 24 hours with us and it, yeah, 
it's funny because um I'm like, no, that's not the case, but it's just like it was my dad. It was like boom, 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 boom. You gotta keep gotta keep moving. You gotta have the next objective. Or the next what how he would um phrase it. Like you gotta get over that hill. You gotta get to the next hill. You gotta keep yeah, moving. get over like, the hump, right? Yeah, the hump. Yeah, yeah. Like you gotta yeah. get over the hump. Yeah, that's what he would yeah. And I, you know, I internalized that. And um, yeah, it, I think like it, it's a good and bad. Like it's good because like I think it it kind of prepared me for the amount of rejection that you experience in publishing because like I didn't take I didn't even take the time to absorb the emotional impact of it. It was just like okay, well that's done. Next thing, like you know. So it, yeah, <laughs> well I feel that one. I, yeah. So I, I've gotten up to like six, seven rejections, and to this day, like I've never like thought about it. Yeah. No, like, I don't. I don't get phased by it the way that I think other people do. Sometimes it'll sting a little bit, but it's not like. I know some people who will literally like just and it's and this isn't to say that, you know, if you do this, you're wrong or you're bad. That's that's not what I'm saying. But I've seen people just like mope about it the whole day. And I'm like, I can't oh, do that. Like it's not it's not I'm not built that way. And then I think in part it's because of like dad's military discipline and how he would just bring it into the household. No, 100 percent. I mean, you and you bring that up, like how busy you are and like. Then I start to realize, like, oh, man, you know, in college, I worked part time. I was taking 18 credits a semester. Like, I was dating. Like, yeah. Like, what am I doing yeah. now? Well, I'm in a master's. I'm working full time. I'm married, you know, with three kids out of the blue now. And it's like, yeah. oh, and, I, yeah. and I've got side projects I'm working on. It's like, oh, man, like, I really like, okay, that that did stick with me. Hopefully, that transfers, you know, once I'm done with school and can be full time into writing um, and stuff like that here, too. I think that will transfer over. But, oh, man, yeah, you brought that up and I didn't even think about it. I was like, yeah, yeah, you're not I wrong. Think, yeah, the discipline, the discipline stays. It's just it's, it's it, manifests it manifests in different yeah. different ways yeah. now. Um, and it's sometimes maybe not the easiest to understand. Yeah, I, I guess on my end. Yeah. So, yeah. So um, that's definitely something I've been kind of trying to be cognizant of and just like, you know, accept it for what it is, but also try to like approach it in a healthier way, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense. Um, All right. So question for you, Brent. Okay. A, little, a, little, a little bit more on the emotional side here. That's just. fine. That's fine. That's fine. We could do this. I only got <laughs> stuffed up nose anyway, so it works out. Um, Why? Well, you brought up Don't Ask, Don't Tell. Yeah. I remember when that was pulled away. And the big joke for the week was, hey, so-and-so, we don't care about your boyfriend anymore. Just go out and tell us now. We already knew, right? Yeah. You just joke around like that. But it was like one of those when that came out, some people were like, they really cared that it it, it was pulled apart, and other people yeah. were like, if you're willing to die to die next to me, I don't care what you are. Yeah, it, it, and so I, I saw this weird transition of it, it went from like you weren't allowed to talk about it to like, hey, we really don't care if you are like as long as you are a good person, you're here with us, like. You want to fight with us side by side, but I want to know, kind of know on your front of things, um, you know, and the way you grew up and stuff like that. How did that policy affect your home? So it's, it didn't in terms. So the thing with like, <laughs> so the thing with it is that like, you know, my dad was uh, very much like even long before it came about, he was like, look, he was like, 
if you're going to be in the foxhole with me and we're getting bombs, so that's, I don't give a damn like what, what you're doing, right? But um, he told me actually a story about a soldier he had in Hawaii. And he always uses this example of like, you know, like trying to like let go of expectations. He was like, look, this guy was ripped. He was huge. Like he was in better shape than all of us. He was a better shot than all of us. And, you know, all the guys like loved him. You know, they thought of him as like the man's man. And then one day the guy had to go home because his boyfriend died in a car crash and none of them knew he had a boyfriend. And my dad said like that one soldier for him, at least he was like, that was his first real exposure to it beyond like stereotypes that you would see. And he was like, it changed his mindset. And I do think because of my two of the two parents, when I came out, it was actually my dad that took it a lot better. Really? yeah. And I, and when I tell people that everyone's kind of like, that's not what I would expect. You said your dad was a drill sergeant. You said your dad was this in the army. He was like, he was the kind of dad that in the army, like the other kids in the neighborhood were scared of our dad. Like they, if he told them something, they would listen. Like he was that father that everybody was like, nah, your dad's a, your dad's a badass. We're not, you know, without messing yeah. with him. And so that's why people were like, he's the one that took it easier. But yeah, he took it like, he took it like it was nothing. But I think what happened is that it, his his nonchalant of being nonchalant about it, and my mom being a little more like bothered by it, it created this kind of like weird. We just don't talk about it in the household, where like you know, um, so when the whole "don't ask, don't tell" thing like was repealed, it wasn't really a big topic of discussion, and I think part of it was just like this this undercurrent of like. We know it's here in our household, but like we're not talking about it yet. And Got it. yeah, now personally, outside of that, I actually was um, it's like early twenties. I was in um, I was dating this major in the army, and um, even when it was repealed, he wasn't going to tell because he was like, "That's still going to affect my career." Like. Yeah. Even though they they say that, you know, it's fine. I know like if I was to be out, it would affect my career advancement. Well, you you still got that as a major, like he's got some time in, right? Like right, right. years at that point. Yeah. And he's dealing with people that have been in for twenty or thirty years. Like right. that type of mentality just doesn't go away with a no. policy change. Right. And that was pretty much his point. He was like, you know, he's that wasn't why we um, ended things, but it was like a, it was a big topic of discussion because me being young, idealistic and righteous, of course, uh, <laughs> you know, expected him to like, well, like, hey, it's over with now. Like, you should be open. And he was like, no, that's that's just not the re- that's not the reality for me. Like, I'm yeah. black and I'm gay. Like, I can't expect to advance in my career if I was to come out. Yeah, no, and that's that's the sad realization of what that mil- what the military is was at that time, um, and I know it's you know things have changed over the years. I know there's a lot, all a lot of discussion, um, you know, when it comes to a soldier being transgender and stuff like that, and that's for them to figure out, uh, you know, what policies they want, I guess. But I wanted to kind of circle back to who you are as a person, Brent, and, and the way you were brought up and living and moving around 
and kind of what your experience is being a military brat, but also being um, black, uh, because that's something your dad was infantry. That's not I'm going to say this right now. It's not common to see a black man in the infantry, Um, at least from the places I was stationed. There was like one or two black guys per 200 of every of white guys, Hispanics, even people from Guam and, you know, um, Polynesian yeah. and stuff like that. Like that, that, that's unique to me that in my experience, like what, what was that like for you though? Because I, you know, I'm just back even in the nineties, you guys were probably, maybe probably the only black family in a lot of these circles. How was that growing up for you guys? So it's weird. So like dad was infantry, but he had, <laughs> he's just had, I don't think he realizes it sometimes, but like my dad, like he was like, He's like this force of nature when he would like come into rooms and like he just commanded like everybody's respect. Like and I and not to say race didn't wasn't an issue he had to deal with. I, I definitely think it was. But he just was that guy like, I don't know, in a way he was almost I'm trying to think of a good comparable here. But he just he just commanded the respect of like anybody he worked with. And they they all loved him like he's to this day, like he'll have soldiers who worked with him 20 something years ago randomly send them a letter in the mail like hey sergeant lambert i just want to hit you up like i remember our time together like you were an amazing leader blah 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 like so i I, i'm not going to speak for him and say that he didn't deal with it as much as i think you know you would think but Mm -hmm. he just had this personality like he just knew how to like command people's respect so um i never honestly i didn't feel the racism on base when i when the racism came into play was when we went off base when we lived in these places and we went to the towns or the cities or whatever outside of the base is when i typically felt when the racism would would crop up so like yeah. my dad was my dad actually he could he definitely had the respect of the, his fellow soldiers but um i guess when it hit the when it was the weirdest for me, I think, and when I really started thinking more globally as a as a person was when we went to Panama. It was very mm-hmm. weird because that's when I was starting to become, I think, more and more conscious of like black people's place in American history and how horrific it's been for so much of it. And so coming to the country of Panama, which we bombed pretty relentlessly and seeing like burnt out cars where homeless kids were living in the cars because there was nowhere else for them to go or seeing people walking around missing limbs because of the bombs we dropped or, you know, seeing like whole neighborhoods flattened that had never been repaired because of the damage we did. It became weird for me because I was like, I'm part of an apparatus that did this. And yet this country also did these horrible things to people like me too. So what the hell are we doing here? And and I think that was the beginning of the creeping arguments that like me and my father would continue to get into for some years afterwards. And, you know, we, we just had this like we're butting heads. And I think it was because of my growing consciousness about like being black and America's place in the world and like, you know, how it's mm-hmm. weird to kind of be part of that imperial arm. And then, you know, my dad's role in it. And, you know, and it, and it wasn't like, it wasn't like I felt like he was like 
this evil figure now that like served the, the dark empire or something. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like that, but it was more like, yeah, you're such a good, honorable in- guy with this integrity. Like, doesn't this seem wrong to you? Like, doesn't this feel wrong? Like, and, and you know, and so, yeah, that's when it got complicated for me, I think, was right when we moved to Panama. Because before then, I had moved to bases in America. So I didn't have to actually see what America's power could do. But, like, when I went to Panama, I got to see firsthand the aftermath of what um, us delivering military power onto a country actually looks like. Yeah. And there was, there was actually, so the middle school I went to in Panama was outside of the base so like there was the base and then we had the a couple of miles away was um the middle school so they had the middle school completely fenced off you know so on and so forth the reason they have to have it fenced off is because people would protest people would throw rocks at our buses they were like you know they they you know they were they were upset about you know america's role in things and uh, you know, you know, so my mom freaked out a little bit. She was like, "Oh my god, like he's got to go over there and deal with this." Honestly, it wasn't as bad as like they made it sound. It made it sound much worse. I think it was just one day out the year that people would protest. I think it was yeah. commemorating when we first started bombing them. But um, yeah, it's just it 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 was just it was weird to be at a point where I was growing in like understanding my own blackness and being in a place that had been attacked by America. It was a weird combination of things to be reckoning with at the same time. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, I mean, and and that's, you know, how, what grade were you in then? Was that, so I got into Panama the second half of my fifth grade year. And then I was there for my sixth and seventh grade year. So that's that weird middle school age where body's growing in weird ways. And (laughs) yeah, that's also like, that's super young for you to get like, be able to look at the destruction that's being caused. And I think that's the advantage and disadvantage, right? Double-edged swords there of being a military kid. Um, yeah. You saw firsthand the cost of war. And my, my dad was very honest about it. He never, like, sugar-coated. He has this, this philosophy where, like, if you're old enough to ask, you're old enough to get an answer. So yeah. he never sugar-coated anything with us. And, you know, I remember, I, I, I remember actually, when we first got to Panama. They had they sat all the families down in the room. They pulled up this map of the country and they were like, you see these red zones? You don't go to these red zones because Americans are not like there and you may be kidnapped and we may never find you. And they, you know, so the, um, that was like one of the first things uh, we get sat down, you know, and they told us this. And um, so on the way, I remember on the way from the airport, on the way to where we were going to be staying, well, we had to stay in the base hotel. Um, I remember seeing a bunch of like naked kids in this burnt out train car. And I, you know, I asked my dad, I was like, what, what's going on here? And he was like, that's a remnant of a train we bombed. And, you know, the, they haven't cleaned it up or they haven't had a chance, you know, the infrastructure to clean it up. Yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, definitely. I got to see that like, very early on and understand like the actual cost of what happens when, you know, when war happens. Yeah. In the aftermath. For sure. I, so I know cognizant of time right now. Uh, I've got two more questions I want to ask. You, All right. <laughs> right. And diving a little bit, 
deeper here. You, you've expressed a couple times that you had some issues. You and dad had gotten to a few fights growing up in high school. Yeah. Um, kind of walk me through that scenario. Um, but walk it through me as a writer. Okay. <laughs> how, okay. as a writer, how would you get this dynamic of you being aware of how black people have been affected by American policies and how that's translated you know, from what you've seen in war and how that affected your relationship with your father. Okay. So if I was to approach it as a, as a form of storytelling, of course I would have to be the main character here, I guess, in this thing. So you would have to, you would, I think you would have to one, maybe do like, you would have to set up something to really show like where I am learning about like blackness. So you'd have to show me in school because that's why I'm learning this stuff, right? I'm learning yeah. about it in school. I'm learning about these history lessons in, in regards to, and thank God I had educators who were willing to be honest about it, but, um, you know, learn these things about slavery and the uh, Atlantic slave trade and how, you know, these European powers basically tore these countries apart for resources and then also, you know, being in middle school and showing uh, showing how privileged I am and that I'm living in a Panama in Central America and I'm going to a school that for just for Americans. And if you were Panamanian and you want to go to this school, you actually had to pay for it like a private school. So we had some Panamanians of like rich families that went to school with us. And we literally had a huge fence around our school. So I, you would have to show that setting, I think, to really establish like the the, the, the privilege at work here. And there is um, there's one incident in my middle school life that I would use to sort of juxtapose that um, that power dynamic that, you know, I had to learn about early on. So it was after school one day, me and some kids were playing basketball and um, a trans sex worker comes running up to the fence and is like, you know, panicked, frantic, like speaking Spanish, like just like, and so we had a friend with us who spoke Spanish and he was like, she's asking for help. Like, um, she was with two soldiers and they didn't know she was trans and now she's scared they're going to try to kill her because they pulled a gun out on her. And so this is after school. So we're like, what the hell do we do? We uh, get a janitor and was like, hey, you got to let her in, let her in. And he was like, no, I can't let her in. She's not American. And I understood then how fucked up it was because I'm like, this is someone who needs help. They they are literally in danger and we can't help them because she's not American. And we <laughs> have to basically. Yeah. So like if I was a writer and I wanted to establish like the conflict that I was feeling at that time that's the incident i would do to illustrate that it's it's so crazy because you you bring that up and my first thought was the, the security risk of 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 her yeah how do, how do i like how does the janitor of all people determine the security risk right yeah. i just went through so many different processes there uh, but I, I can totally understand how that would affect you as a as a kid, though. Like you see yeah. someone in need and you can't help them, you're helpless yeah. at that point. Yeah, and we were all we were all upset. We were all yelling at the gender. We're like, no, she needs help. Like, let her in. Like, what is wrong with you? And like, he wouldn't do it. And so we basically had to stay there and talk with her and like keep her close by until like the police could show up. But like, she was completely terrified the entire time. Yeah. 
And, you know, it was like that, I think that incident like embedded itself in my memory. And um, if I was a writer, I would use that incident to really show the, the moment of kind of like awakening of like, okay, this is a, this is some fucked up privilege here that you know, something's that, not right. Yeah, exactly. Oh man, so, yeah, that's a that's a good one. Yeah, no, that that uh, that's stuck with me forever. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, let's bring bring that to full circle with with your with your dad and your guys' yeah. relationship. Did you feel like that is the point in your in your relationship with your not only your dad but your your parents as a whole? start to change when you started asking more questions and realizing everything. Yeah. Panama was a turning point for me for sure, because it was like, I was old enough to ask questions and I was also old enough to find out answers for myself. And this was also, and also too, like I didn't just go to school with Americans. Like I was saying, there was a lot of rich Panamanian kids who went to school with us. So I learned from them some of the things we've done to them and some of the ways like we've hurt their country and, you know, becoming by becoming friends with them and learning about them. You know, I, I started to get this more global perspective and I, yeah. and I started questioning everything. It was like, well, why do we do this? Why is this here? Like, why did we do that? Like, yeah. And so I think it just kind of like it snowballed and it just kept snowballing for years afterwards. Yeah, well, I mean, you're establishing personal relationships with those people that are affected by our government's right. our government's actions at that point, and in a sense, reaping benefit from that unknowingly. Right, right, and and, and you know, and this, and I think that that's that's why I get so irritated when discussions of privilege come up, and you know, you have people go like, "Well, I mean, I may be white, but I'm poor." Or, you know, they may be like, oh, I may be I may be straight, but, you know, I'm still black. It was like you're not getting it. You're missing the you're missing the ways that you are privileged and you don't even realize it. And I think being in Panama was like my my crash course almost in that concept. Really? It's interesting. Yeah. Marshall. So I know I've been I haven't said much during this episode, uh, but I, I you know you've brought up, you've brought up privilege a couple of times, and I can't help but it it keeps popping into my head some of the conversations I've been having lately, just about trying to communicate to people like privilege is not about having money, it's not about having, you know, it's about having to deal with certain things um, that no one else will have to deal with because of something like the color of your skin. Right. So, um, Nick brought up earlier, uh, having to do with, you know, not very many black folks being in infantry. Right. And then you brought up, um, something very specific about being in another country and seeing what America has, is doing while they're out there. Right. So I guess my, I guess my really, my, my major question for you, Brent is, how do we deal with these type of issues in in our writing and get that across, especially for writing like sci-fi and fantasy, right? Because I think I think the thing is we 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 miss those little um I'm channeling Will here a little bit. We miss those little nuances a little bit, you know, about like what we have to deal with based off of our privilege and how can we build better worlds and stuff like that. I don't I don't know if that helps or is any is even a question but i'm just i'm just really curious based on what you've been saying um how your experience because i mean for me and i've said this before on the show 
you know, being black and being part of a very small rural society and being the only black kid in my class, for example, like how I bring something else to the table. So what do you do as far as your writing um, uh, and that kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, so I like to, so I, I tend to go with multiple POV stories. So um, I always try to think who's getting screwed and who's getting screwed the most and make sure that they have a voice in that story. Cause that's usually where you're going to start unpacking the privileges and inherent injustices in any world that you build is um, you got to think about like, who is losing here? Like who, who is being left out of the conversation? So um, like if, if there's a world where, you know, I'm just gonna be very generic here, but like only men can do magic. Well, you got to have a point of view of a woman. Then you got to show like what the society looks like for her and how she's being kept out of certain things that she probably wants. Um, yeah, that, that, that would be my quickest answer. Just always think about like who, once you build your world, once you, you know, think about like, and, and, and when I say build your world, I don't even necessarily mean just secondary worlds, but like, you have the world build, even if it's a near future fantasy or I mean, sci-fi, whatever. Uh, yeah, near future, uh, contemporary, whatever. You have to still do some world building. So think about who is getting screwed the hardest in your world and who is being unfairly left out of society and make sure that they have a, a substantial voice in your story. Because so I think if you look at some of the most um, groundbreaking, like challenging fantasy and science fiction out there today they have those voices in there like i think of um the unbroken from c.l clark like her main character is a conscript somebody who literally was torn from their home and you know they they're having to navigate that that world and yeah i just i would that would be my encouragement think about and even if you don't necessarily give that person a pov make sure that that person is not a background in your story like there, there's always going to be, as long as we're dealing with capitalism and we're dealing with all the um, imperialism, colonialism, all those that that history, there's always people inherently that are going to be left out. So make sure that you include those stories in your work. That's a that's in line with what we learned from Alka Older uh, over the summer in our in our course. Obviously, she's really good at writing resistance stories. Um, and her advice for us was implement a new policy and then write from the aspect of the people that it hurts. And that's your start of a rebellion, right? Like, and Brent, I, like, I liked how you brought that kind of full circle there for us and let us, you know, give me a Marshall reminder here, you know, what we've, what we've learned in the past. But I think it's important to, you know, look at who's being affected by all the actions all the way around um, with that stuff, especially when it comes to military stuff. Like, cause there's always, there's a good guy and bad guy. And I'm going to quote that because there's really not, there's people who do things and people that are affected by those things. Right. Well, and, and I mean, if you really want to, if you really want to get into the weeds of it, you know, you have the, who is fighting for a power and who is fighting against the power and, and how, yeah. uh, and, and, how are those people framed differently depending on the point of view? Because if you, yeah, when you're fighting against the interests of rich people, you're a terrorist. When you're fighting for the interests of rich people, you're a soldier. 
and it, you know so it's, it's like you have to you ha- yeah you have to be willing to i think and this, this is I, I think any writer like this you've got to be able to step outside of yourself and um really dig into the mechanics of your world and how it works and that can be a little bit uncomfortable because like like i said just you know being a kid in panama having to understand like we did this we we've hurt this country irreparably like that's uncomfortable that's not that's not an easy pill to swallow so um when you're building your worlds i think you got to be ready to confront those hard truths and just you know accept that like you might find yourself in some of these privileges that you're writing about and trying to critique and you know yeah the thing about privilege is that no one's saying that you should feel guilty for it it's about recognizing that you have it and using it to help those who don't have it and mm-hmm. yeah so my advice that'd be my advice just look for look for who's getting screwed over i like it marshall do you have other questions i know you kind of kind of hopped in here a little later no, on I'm back in just- uh <laughs> Yeah, I may have I may have missed part of this, but uh, no, I I love listening to you guys talk about this stuff, and and for me, like I don't know, I, I I really feel like having conversations about our past and having conversations about what we've been through um, as writers um, does does a number of different things um, as far as you know, our readers knowing where we are coming from, but at the same time, we bring a certain um, level of, um, you know, expertise uh, to the, to our work as well. Right. And I think when it comes down to race and you guys talking about the military and stuff like that, I mean um, it's, it's really important to have these conversations, I think. And so I, I really am stoked that we did these two episodes for sure. So thank you for, for putting yourselves out there, gentlemen. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, it's fun. And I think for anybody out there listening, if you take anything away from this, it is that own your own your own story. And it's OK to, you know, own the good, the bad, the ugly, the all, all parts of it, because like as a, I've probably said this before in previous episodes, but as an author, you got to bleed on the page. And, you know, the only way to bleed on the page is that, like, sometimes you got to cut yourself. And that that sometimes means going over the parts of your life that aren't necessarily, you know, the best parts are even, are even the, sometimes there's, there's joyful tears too. So sometimes you might got to bleed the happy out, but, um, just, yeah, just mm-hmm. own your story. That would be my, that, that would be my, if you take anything from these two episodes. For sure. And I, I just hope people, you know, take it, learn, learn a little bit on our experiences on how to get those types of characters right or wrong depending on how you want to do it there. Uh, but yeah, that, that was kind of my kind of focus is making sure that like people have first town accounts and of what it's like one to be in the service and two, like being raised by the service in a sense, you know, being a, yeah. a child of a military service member, but it's been fun. Or I feel yeah, like no. I feel like Brandon, you and I could talk a couple more hours about all this stuff. Cause I got a slew of questions still that, uh, you know, we didn't get through, so maybe we'll have a, a few more episodes <laughs> next year for it. So. Part three. <laughs> yeah. No, this was great. Oh, I'm glad we did it. Um, I hope everyone took something good away from it. And uh, yeah, definitely enjoyed the conversation. 
What I, what I think might be interesting too is based off these two episodes, um, letting letting the community kind of sit on them for a little bit and then throw some questions back at us for maybe a follow up. Um, you know, because we do have a lot of folks in our community that do write um, military characters or uh, you know worlds with militaries functioning within them. So I think um, it might be really helpful to to circle back uh, at some point yeah. as well. No, totally so, yeah. love it. Sit on it. Ask a few questions. Do a Q&A. There we go. And this has been Just Keep Writing, a podcast for writers, by writers, to keep you writing. You can find us at justkeepwriting.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Feel free to reach out to any of us on our social medias, and please jump in our Just Keep Writing Discord channel. Links to all of that is in the show notes. Lastly, please support our show by going to patreon.com slash justkeepwriting. We offer daily writing prompts, early access to podcast episodes, and much more. Thanks for listening, and just keep writing.